We're going to continue our study through the Old Testament. We're up to 2 Samuel chapter 3. We're going to pretty much jump right into the passage here. It's got a pretty good context on its own here. We're going to start at verse 1 there. It says, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul, and of course King Saul has passed away now, but his son is in his place at the moment. So there's a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. So right away we can see the, divide, uh, the tribes of Israel were divided at this point. You have the tribe of Judah, which was following David, and has made him king. And then you had the rest of the 11 tribes, which were following the house of Saul. And we're told here, Something interesting the Lord wants us to see about David. He was growing stronger and stronger during this time. So uh, it was obvious to see the Lord's hand was with him just as he had promised he would be. And uh, it's pretty evident because here you have one tribe, the tribe of Judah that David is with. And it's going against all the other tribes, 11 of them. And he's getting stronger and the other 11 tribes are getting weaker in these battles. So it definitely, it definitely shows you God's hand is on the side of David here. So it goes on, and the Lord kind of gives us a bit of a side note here, starting in verse 2. It says, sons were born to David in Hebron. And that's where he was staying at the time. The Lord had told him to move to the northern city in the area of Judah. So he's in Hebron, and it says his firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, his second Chiliab by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithrium, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. So during the seven years that he was in Hebron, David was adding wives. And each of his wives bear him a son during this time, we see. So they're all listed for us here. And in verse 3, it tells us that David started something new in Israel's history. Uh, it says there, if you notice at the end, the one he married was the daughter of this king that came from uh, Geshur. So David married a daughter of a neighboring king, probably as part of making a treaty with him. So this is a political marriage, and they didn't have this in Israel uh, in the leadership up to this point. So he started this, this little thing going on. Now David was wrong in having more than one wife. Uh, God had clearly warned Israel against doing this. In uh, Deuteronomy 17, if you wanna look at that a second, uh, the Lord was, was very clear in this passage in Deuteronomy 17, and if you look down to verse 14, it says, When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell in it, of course, that's the promised land, and that's where they are, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren, you shall set his king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But notice here, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. 
For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. And then he says in verse 17, again, very clearly, neither shall he multiply wives for himself. So the Lord made it very clear. And he tells him there's a real warning here, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. So these were extremely clear instructions from the Lord that he told him, do not multiply wives. So with David here, the Lord is not approving of what he's doing. He's just recording the facts for us. You know, and we can, we can learn from this that the Lord does not bend his rules just for us. You know, the enemy might to trick, try to trick us into telling us that, but the Lord is consistent and he does not change. And that's a very good principle for us in these days when we're told that God has had a change of mind over some sins and they're no longer sins. You know, uh, that's not true. If God declares something to be a sin, then that's what it is, a sin. So if you want to know what is, is, it is sin. <laughs> it still is sin. So the Lord uh, doesn't change on that one. And David here, you know, and this is a danger with leaders. They may get to the point where they think, you know, I'm above the law. I can do kind of what I want to do. And I have such a different schedule for most people. I have a, a right to do what I'm going to do. And then they make their own choices. So the Lord lets us know here that he's recording this, but there's no way the Lord is pleased with anything he's doing. And uh, as a matter of fact, he's even going against God's ideal for marriage, which is one man with one woman. And that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. So what David did here by having multiple wives went against God's design for marriage. And uh, that was another standard God had never changed. You know, one man for one woman, not one man and one man and one woman for one woman. Uh, God never changed that. Man tried to change those things. And this practice for a king to actually have multiple wives uh, and even have their, their daughters uh, marry into other uh, king's sons and all this kind of stuff, it was a common practice among the pagans. And that, can, that practice continued many centuries, you know. And I think a lot of that probably still goes on in different places. And they would use that for making peace treaties with some countries that maybe they were at odds against. <clears throat> so... The Lord here is not pleased with what David is doing, but he blessed David as king despite his area of major disobedience, I would call it here, to the Lord. And you know, the thing is, when you, when you look at David's life from this point on, uh, you do see God's hand of blessing on him, but David paid a high price for what he was doing by multiplying wives for himself. You know, listen what happened to David's family. We'll just take a glimpse in his future here. His one son, Amnon, raped his half-sister and then was murdered by his half-brother, Absalom. Then Absalom, another of his sons, there also led a civil war against David and tried to kill David at one point. And it doesn't stop there. Another one of David's sons, Adonijah, he tried to take David's throne and he even tried to take one of David's concubines and he ended up getting executed. So when the Lord clearly warns us about being disobedient to him, he's trying to spare us all the pain and heartbreak that disobedience brings with it. You know, and to add to this, David set a horrible example for his son Solomon, who ended up with a thousand wives and concubines, and they did exactly what the Lord said would happen. They turned his heart away from the Lord. 
So sometimes, you know, we don't realize or think about what kind of example we are giving to our children. And this passage here shows us a major weakness that David had in his life for women. And it will continue to plague him in his life. And it will continue to grow until it actually gets to the point where he has the great sin with Bathsheba. So sin needs to be dealt with in our lives before it takes us to a place where we end up with disasters and and such painful regrets that cannot be undone. And then we'll have to live with those painful scars that remain after that. And there's even a greater reason why God did not want the kings of Israel to intermarry with other kingdoms like this. And that's because the Lord wanted them to think that they're, to know that their safety is not in you cutting a deal with some other king in order to make peace with them. God wanted them to see that their safety was based on him watching over them. He is their safety, okay? And he wanted them to know that they could trust him. And that's the, it's kind of interesting, that's the major lesson from the whole Bible. <clears throat> Excuse me. God's calling us to just trust him, that he's telling us the truth. He's not lying to us. He's not got some hidden agenda. He loves us and he's trying to tell us the truth and we can trust him in what he says. So going back to our, our passage in 2 Samuel 3, if you look down to verse 6 here, it says, Now it was so... While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. So if you remember, Abner was the head commander of Saul's army, and then after Saul died, he was the one who actually declared one of Saul's sons to be king over Israel. And what was going on here was Abner was basically running the show behind the scenes but he didn't want to be seen as the military guy that just took over things. So he puts Ishbosheth, you know, one of Saul's sons, in the position as the king. So he's kind of got him up there for people to say, we've got a king. But Abner's the one who's really pulling things together, holding things together. And he's the military guy that's, that's really the tough guy holding all this on. And remember, too, something interesting about Abner. He was fully aware of God's promise to David to be the king over Israel. And we'll see that again in our passage here. It comes up again. So Abner has been going against God all of this time. And he's an interesting character to see. So verse 17 goes on. It says, and Saul had a concubine. So Saul's gone, but this is a concubine that he had while he was alive. And it gives us her name, whose name was Rizpah. She was the daughter of Aya. So Ishbosheth, which is Saul's son, he said to Abner, Why have you gone in to my father's concubine? Now apparently, Abner had gone into Saul's concubine, and Ishbosheth was going to confront him about it. So even though Ishbosheth was a weak leader, it bothered him enough to know that Abner had pulled this stunt that he's going to stand up to him and say something to him. And uh, that's amazing just to see him be willing to do that. Now, one of the things going on with that, I think, and there's some controversy. Some people think that maybe Abner didn't really do this, and then some think maybe he did. And I, I give you my reason why I kind of go on that side that I think Abner did. 
Uh, it mentions in the verse 7 there that he was gaining control. Uh, verse 6, I'm sorry, that he was strengthening his hold. He was gaining more control there. So by him doing this, that's going to that's gonna change things. Because uh, when someone would take a wife or a concubine of a farmer king like this, it was sending a message that they're the ones who now have control of this kingdom because they have the self-appointed authority, they put themselves in that position, to take one of these wives or concubines and they feel like nobody's going to stop me from doing what I want to do. So it's kind of a in-your-face kind of a thing to say that if I can take the king's concubine, then I'm the top guy. All right, so uh, it seems to me like it was that kind of a move that he was doing since the Lord put it back to back here. So look at this guy, Abner. He's a very arrogant man, isn't he? (laughs) He goes against God's choice of king, and he even has the audacity to take one of Saul's concubines. So when people get in leadership, they can have this temptation to think that they can do whatever they want, regardless of what anybody thinks including God. And we see that here with Abner. And it's interesting, we see this with David too, right? Because he's collecting wives. He's multiplying wives. And that's obviously not God's plan. So when you think about David's heart for the Lord, here we got two guys the Lord shows us who are doing their own thing in rebellion to God and and the actions they're taking in that. And here's David, one guy whose heart is for the Lord, you know? And you see him stumble in this area, as well as the arrogant guy, Abner. Abner's not too much a surprise. He's doing things in the flesh all the time. But you also have this guy, David, who's pulling stunts too. So it tells us we need to guard our own heart when it comes to matters like this. Because not only the ungodly can get to this point where they fall for a temptation here, but even strong believers, I mean, David's heart was for the Lord, And yet he's tempted in these areas and he keeps falling by adding these wives, which he's not supposed to do. So we need to beware that we might think we are standing, as the scriptures say, but beware lest you fall, because we can fall to that temptation too. All right, jump down to verse 8. It says, Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth, and he said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? So he's very upset that he's been confronted about this. And when he said that he was a dog's head, he's basically saying he's just a a worthless traitor here to Judas, by the way he's throwing this out. And he says this about dogs because they're looked down upon in those days as being a very low, wild animal. You know, we're we're used to the little nice puppy dog and we think they're wonderful and that. They didn't think that back then. They were just animals that were always feeding on scraps and you, you saw them around, but you would never think of hugging one, picking up, all that kind of stuff. So when he says this, what do you think, I'm just a dog's head? He's saying something really, really low. You know, I don't know if we would move it that low, but it'd be kind of like, you know, a mouse head or something in our way of thinking. It's like a nasty thing. So he's saying, do you think that's what I'm like? <clears throat> and, you know, he's also saying... You think I'm worthless in that sense, and I'm also a traitor because you're telling me I'm on Judah's side? Is that what you're implying here? You know, so he's really upset. He's so angry over this, and he's saying, uh, basically, he was innocent of these accusations is the way he's trying to come across here. He never answers the question, if you notice, (laughs) and he says, why did you do this? He never says, I didn't. That's never in his conversation. So I tend to think that Abner was guilty, and that's why he responded in anger. 
Some people look at this the reverse and say, I think he was angry because he wasn't guilty. But you know, as you look at this, I think he's basically saying, after all I've done for you, Ishbosheth, you know, I put you in leadership, you've got all these tribes under you. After all I've done, you know, you should be grateful instead of pointing your finger at me. And I see, you know, that this is going on in the verse, and as you continue in verse 8, he says, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father. I've just been loyal. He said to his brothers, to his friends, I have not delivered you into the hand of David. I've not turned you over to David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? So he's saying that he's done nothing but remain loyal to Saul's house, and he's the only reason that Ishbosheth is even alive, because Abner didn't turn him over to David. So I think he's saying, you know, I can do anything I want, and you should be grateful that I'm on your side. That's kind of what's coming out of him. So it goes on in verse 9. May God do so to Abner, talking about himself in the third person here, may God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba, which meant the whole territory there basically. Now Abner is so angry that he said he's going to take the kingdom away from Ishbosheth and he's going to give it to its rightful owner, David. And he made that very clear here. <laughs> and I think if we could see his face at this point, he's probably as red as can be, you know, as he's firing these things back to old Ishbosheth, the kind of puppet ruler he's put in place there. So it's like, boy, don't confront somebody over their sin, huh? They're going to rip your head off here. <laughs> so Abner, interesting as he's saying these things here, he lets us know that he knew all along what God's will was for David. And yet, He's been doing his own thing, going directly against God's will. So we can tell what someone is like in how they respect or they disrespect God's commands. You know, Abner was extremely conceited and arrogant. He may have been a very talented warrior, and he seemed like he was, but he could have and he should have been using his talents for the Lord instead of against the Lord. And that's something that, that we need to be careful of too. If we're using our talents for the world rather than for the Lord, we need to ask ourselves this question, am I going against the Lord by doing this? You know, I mean, if our talents are benefiting the kingdom of God in some way, then that's, that's good, that's one thing. But if we're using our talents and gifts that God has given us only for our own profit and our own benefit, you know, then there's a good chance that we're actually going against, <clears throat> excuse me, against God's plan for our life. Take some time to think that one through, you know, because I've seen people like that, that God has gifted them and they will not use their gifting for the Lord. They will only use it for themselves. So God gave Abner his talents to use them to serve the Lord, not to serve his own selfish desires. So Abner's a picture of a guy who's gifted and talented, but he's going to do things his own way. He's really not that interested in the way the Lord wants things done. And, and how do you like, like the, uh, the blatant hypocrisy here of this guy Abner? Did you notice he starts out there in uh, verse 9, he says, May God do so to Abner and more also, you know? So uh, here he is, 
He's going to take an oath in the name of the Lord, the very Lord that he has been going against for years. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. We trip over our own hypocrisy sometimes, don't we? And, you know, you just wonder, can people see their own hypocrisy before they trip over like this guy? Or are they blind to it? Or do they just not care that they're so hypocritical? You know, you kind of ask those questions, too, when you go through the Gospels and you see Jesus dealing with the hypocrisy in the leadership there. Are these guys so blind that they really don't see it or do they just not even care? You know, it does make you wonder when you look at that stuff. So down to verse 11, here's uh, Meshiba. I have a hard time with this guy's name. It's Saul's son. Uh, He says he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. This is Ishbosheth, that guy, not a family, not a name you hear all the time. But, you know, he probably had more that he wanted to say to Abner here, but he was too afraid to say anything else because of this, this kind of big bully, Abner. You know, I'm sure he really puffed up his chest when he was talking and comes across pretty intimidating. And, and doesn't it just bother you to see bullies like this guy? You know, they, they do whatever they want, and Abner did that. And they seem to get away with it. But their day is coming. You know, the Lord's going to deal with them, and they aren't getting away with anything. So we can encourage ourselves with that when you see the bullies show up. Uh, Verse 12, it says, Then Abner sent messengers, and notice this, on his behalf to David, saying, Who is this? Whose is the land? So he's asking David that question through these messengers. And he's saying also, Make your covenant with me. And indeed, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. So notice that Abner is doing all of this for himself. <laughs> you know, he's, he's acting like he's going to do a wonderful thing here for David. He's going to bring all the tribes together and get them under David's rule. But there's a lot of me in there, if you notice. He says he sent messengers on his behalf. And he says, make your covenant with me. And then my hand is going to be with you. So there's a lot of me all over that that passage there. And the thing is, this will turn out to be a blessing for David, but Abner's motive here is not pure. He's not thinking, David's such a great guy, and he's really God's anointed, so I'm really going to help him out, okay? What we see from the story, he's more mad and angry at Ishbosheth than he is for David's cause, all right? And you have to wonder, again, at people's motives sometimes. I mean, from the outside, from David's side, you might think, oh, this guy must have had a change of heart for some reason, you know. And, but the, the real reason is he's just mad at, at Ishbosheth, and he's going to take that away from him. So Abner feels that he's going to retain his position of power if he comes over to David's side, and I'm sure that's what he's thinking. And he'll just be working alongside David now instead of this other king that, that he set up. So verse 13 David said this, good, you know, if you want to come over here, that's good. I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face, you can't even come in my presence, unless you first bring Michael, or Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David agrees to this, but he's got one important requirement for this covenant. He wants his first wife return to him. If you remember this lady, she was Saul's daughter, and Saul had given her to David, you know, when he said, if you, you want this, if you want me to give you your daughter, then I want you to bring these hundred foreskins from the Philistines. 
So David did that, and he even went beyond that. He brought 200 instead to show that I definitely want to be married to your daughter, so I'm, I'm coming with her, this strange dowry that you required. He brings it in abundance. And through the process, you know, Saul was hoping to get David killed. He's thinking if he goes up against these hundred guys, sure enough, somebody's going to take him out. But no, God's hand is on David, and that's just not going to take place. So David was very successful in, in getting this dowry together. So Saul had to give David his daughter. But if you remember the story later on, when David was being chased by Saul, Saul decided he could take a, a cheap shot at David there, and he took his wife, who apparently was still in the land where Saul was, and gave her to another man, and she got married to this other guy. So she's been married to this other man for some time now, but David wants her brought back to himself, all right? So look in verse 14 as the story goes on here. So David sent messengers, and notice here, he didn't send them to Abner. He sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Micho, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. So he points out that, hey, I've already, she's been my wife legally here. Verse 15, and Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, the guy that she was married to now, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. So I see is kind of an interesting thing here that Abner, he's trying to make this deal with David, but you know, David seems to respect Ishbosheth as the ruler of Israel. So David sends messengers to him to make sure this is going to take place and, and probably do it the right way. He's not going to work with Abner behind his back. So he does that. And Ishbosheth, he's not going to go against David here either, since he knows that Abner's basically jumped sides and taken everything with him. So he complies with David's demands here. It's interesting when the Lord lets us have insight into these things. I mean, these are insights into a king's court that we would never be able to see. <laughs> but the Lord kind of lets us have glimpses to see how they pulled stuff off here. So verse 16, then her husband, this is that Paltiel who she's married to at the current time, her husband went along with her. So he's following along to Bahurim. And look what's going on. He's weeping behind her. So this guy's just brokenhearted. Says, so Abner said to him, it's okay, buddy. It's going to work out. You know, just hang in there. That's not what he says at all. Abner says, go and return. <laughs> and the guy returned, it says there, you know. So uh, we see the sad husband whose heart is broken. He's been married to her for probably about 10 years or so by now. Can you imagine, you're, you're in this new life here and all of a sudden somebody comes and yanks your wife away and it's the authorities, there's not a thing you can do about it. So King Saul here sinned against David when you think about how this whole thing played out. When he did this in the first place of taking his daughter away from her husband, David, and giving her to this other guy. And look at the pain it was causing down the road. Here's a broken-hearted guy because of this. You know, we seldom think of what damage our sin is going to cause down the road. We usually just selfishly look at what we want to do in the present, in the now, and we don't even worry about what might happen down the road, how many dominoes might get pushed over because of this. And we see here, too, 
all the compassion that Abner can muster as he just tells this guy, get out of here and go home. You know, it's like, wow, this guy's really cold. So in the story here, as God tells us different episodes kind of in the life of Abner, you can see what kind of character he is. He's probably not somebody you'd want to hang around with too much. You know, he just is not a compassionate guy. He's very arrogant. He's going to do his own thing. You better not get in his way because he'll deal with you, okay? And uh, <laughs> I'm sure this guy, this poor guy's thinking as he's been told to go home, He's probably thinking, it's not much of a home without my wife, whom I love. So it's a very sad picture here, right? Now, we aren't given David's motives for why he wanted his wife back after probably almost 12 years for him. Uh, He's been separated from her as long as Saul's been chasing him and stuff. So it doesn't tell us in detail why. But it's possible that his heart was broken when she was taken from him in the first place. This was his first wife, you know. And he may have been hurting all the time since then and been missing her. So the first chance he gets here, this is the first opportunity he's had an authority to do something about it. He uses the opportunity, you know, and trying to get her back. And it's, it's sad to see, you know, the sorrow that this current husband was showing. But we've got to remember, this guy married another man's wife, right? When you think about this. She was David's wife when he married her in the first place. So this was a messed up relationship from the very beginning. And don't you find it ironic, you know, that we see the same kind of thing today where where people end up with a sad situation and as you start to feel sorry for them, then you realize that they were in a sinful state to begin with, you know? It's kind of like watching one of these Jerry Springer shows and you're feeling sorry for the person. You go, wait a minute, wait a minute. They were a total mess to start with, you know. They've been doing drugs, all this kind of stuff and everything. And then you say, why am I feeling sorry for this person, you know, when, when all this is going on? So it's kind of weird when you wake up and, and discover some of that's been going on. Some of these folks, you know, they've been messed up from the beginning, and, and yet you do feel sorry for them when you see them hurting so bad like this guy. Yeah, his whole world was shattered here over, overnight. So verse 17 goes on. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, so he'd already spoken with the leadership of the tribes there, and he said, in time past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. And now this is when, they were, when it was told them, you know, that God had anointed him as king, and they were, they were for it at that time. He says, now then, do it. <laughs> How do you like the bluntness of Abner here? For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. So again, it sounds pretty hypocritical for Abner to use God's promise to David to be king here as a selling point to the elders of Israel. You know, since Abner's been going against the Lord on this very issue all of this time. You know, when you see this, you're thinking apparently... Abner has no shame. (laughs) I mean, this guy doesn't mind throwing around the name of the Lord when it's going to benefit him, even though he's been against the Lord, you know? So Abner here, uh, he is doing what he said. He's bringing Israel together. He's convincing them to come under David's rule, so he's keeping his word on that. Again, he's got ulterior motives, I think. But verse 19, it goes on. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin, so he's been going to the, the 11 tribes that are not of Judah, but then it mentions specifically 
that he goes to this one tribe, and it's the tribe of Benjamin. And it's because that tribe was the tribe of Saul. That's where he came from. So he's apparently making a very special sales pitch to them as well, uh, why they need to go under David. And then verse 19 goes on, says, Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron. So he goes up to where David's at. And here's what he's speaking. All that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So as he's made his sales pitch, now all these folks are saying, you know what? That's a good idea. We need to go under David's rule. So Abner brings all this news to David, and uh, David here is going to throw a feast to celebrate this covenant that they're making. We see that in verse 20. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. <clears throat> says, then Abner, verse 21, said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace, we're told here. So Abner was telling David that he's going to seal the deal. I'm going to physically go get the leaders of the tribes. They're going to come together and they will sign this covenant and you'll have the whole thing settled, okay? So David lets him go. And as it says, he lets him go in peace. So David at this point is seeing Abner as an ally who's going to you know, bring all of Israel together under him as king. And that's what's supposed to take place. That's God's plan. So David, he shows no hard feelings against Abner, even though they've been at war against each other for some time, right? In verse, uh, verse 1 there, it said, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And that means Abner against David's group. I mean, that's what was going on. So David looks past all of that, and he's willing to, to allow this all to take place under Abner, and uh, the Lord, he's letting, trusting the Lord to use this. So verse 22 goes on, at that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. So it's interesting that David's commander of his army, which was Joab, and he's the guy who would be fighting, you know, against Abner all this time, he wasn't there when Abner was there. <laughs> so interesting that they weren't there at the same time, the Lord was going to let this this deal go through without an interruption from Joab, who's David's commander. And then it says Abner was able to leave peaceably before Joab returned from this conflict that he was in. He was, at, he was fighting some guys and some troops. So he's come back, I'm sure, with his adrenaline all pumped, you know, that I've been fighting these guys. Then he finds out his enemy was just here talking with David, and David let him go. So that would, you can see how that would kind of freak him there. So it goes on then in verse 24, um, and um, let me see, this verse 23, let's jump in there. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab about this. So somebody let Joab in on this information. And they said, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he sent him away. And he's gone in peace. So somebody hurried up and told Joab. They thought he was, needed to know this information. And uh, as soon as he gets there, he's hit with his news. And Joab obviously didn't like what he heard. So verse 24 then Joab came to the king. So he's going to confront David on this. He says, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. I mean, your enemy showed up at your door. Uh, why is it you sent him away? And he's already gone. So Joab's really upset. He doesn't trust Abner at all himself. 
And he doesn't understand why David would let this guy go. He's probably thinking, you just had an opportunity to arrest this guy as a political prisoner, and you just let him go scot-free? So Joab doesn't get this at all. Verse 25, and he goes on. Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you. He's saying, look, that's why this guy came. He didn't come for anything good. He's coming to deceive you. And he says, he wants to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. So he's saying he showed up as a spy. This guy isn't doing you any good at all. So from Joah's perspective, he sees this whole thing as negative as possible. <laughs> you know, the most negative scenario he can come up with. The problem is that he misjudges what is really going on. And it doesn't look like he was willing to stay and listen to David and even ask him what happened. He doesn't. He just comes in, looks like he blesses David out, and he takes off, okay? So Joab already has his mind made up that he knows this is what happened, and he's believing his own story that he invented, okay? So he's jumping the gun on this, and he's going to mess up things because of it. He's going to do something based on his wrong thinking here. So verse 26 says, And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, so he's, he's sending some guys to go get him. It says, who brought him back from the well of Sarah. They, they caught him at this place where he was going to stop for a drink probably. And it says, but David did not know it. So Joab here has cooked up his own plan to deal with Abner. But David didn't order this, and he had no knowledge that this was going to take place. So verse 27, now when Abner had returned to Hebron... Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately. So he doesn't let him come in to where David is at. David doesn't know anything about it. He pulls him aside like there's some stuff I need to talk to you about. And there he stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. And that was Joab's brother, if you remember, in the, the fight that took place earlier. So Joab's hatred of Abner, it stems back to the death of his, of, uh, his brother Asahel that Abner had killed. And we saw that story, if you remember, in the last chapter. So Joab here is taking vengeance into his own hands, and he really had no right to do that. When Abner killed his brother, if you remember the story, it was during wartime. So it was not a premeditated murder situation at all. So in this situation, Joab is the one who commits premeditated murder here on Abner. Yeah, it's a crazy situation. And this act of Joab is going to cause a very messed up situation for David, okay? Abner was going to close the deal, right? He said, I'm going to go physically get the leaders. I'll bring them back. They'll sign everything. It'll be done. But now Abner can't do that, okay? Joab erased that whole deal. And on top of that, he's now been assassinated by David's commander of his army, so when that news comes out, people are going to say, that's David's top guy. He must have been doing what David wanted, so David must have been pulling a stunt on Abner. That's what it would look like from the outside. So by Joab's reckless actions here, he has just jeopardized the rest of the tribes of Israel coming under David's rule. Now everything is uncertain. Don't you just love it when people mess things up for you by being reckless, you know? and then you have to try to pick up the pieces, that's where David's at right here. Wow. Unbelievable. So verse 28 goes on. Afterward, when David heard it, 
He said, my kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. So he's publicly declaring he had no knowledge of these things taking place and he had not ordered any of these things. Verse 29, let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house. So he said the blame is fully on these guys and that there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper, one who leans on a staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So David puts the entire blame on, on Joab and he asks for curses and hard times to be on Joab's family because of this horrible action. The things he mentions here when he says somebody with a discharge, he's saying something, a guy has something that's oozing from his body and that would, remen- that would render him you know, ceremonially unclean. So he's not allowed to go to the tabernacle, so that would knock that guy out. He also says, let there be a leper in the family, you know, and that would render him unclean, so he couldn't go to the tabernacle either. Or it says, let there be one who's on a staff, that's somebody who's crippled or handicapped, or one who falls by the sword, meaning let him experience death in the family uh, when guys go out to battle. Or even says, one who lacks bread, meaning one who lives in constant poverty. So these are kind of curses he's calling down on Joab for taking this action. And verse 30 goes on, so Joab and Ibishai, his brother, killed Abner. So this lets us know that his other brother, Abishai, was in on this too. And here's the reason. Because he had killed their brother Asahel at Gibeon, and even tells us here, in the battle. So this is a wartime thing that took place. It was not premeditated murder. Uh, Joab's the one who's guilty on this one. And we also see that Joab did not act alone. His brother was an accomplice as well. So he had a silent partner in crime until the Lord puts the name up here and we see that. Verse 31, then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth and mourn for Abner. So these are the commands from the king now. And it says King David followed the coffin. So David He tells all the people, he orders them to mourn the death of Abner. And then he himself shows great respect. You know, he's going to follow the coffin. And uh, that's a very honorable thing that he's doing. Verse 32 goes on. So they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. Now David, he suffered a personal loss here. Because Abner was just about to bring the kingdom physically to David. But David's mourning, I think it was more than that. I think he was mourning the life of a talented man that was sens- his life was senselessly taken from him and wasted. You know, David's heart was broken over this loss. Very interesting to see how sensitive David is here. Verse 33, the king sang a lament over Abner, so he made a, a song for this, and here's what he said. Uh, Should Abner die as a fool dies? So he's saying that Abner didn't do anything foolish that caused his death. You know, we can do foolish stuff and be in the wrong place at the wrong time by our own carelessness. But he said, Abner, he didn't do anything foolish. He wasn't running around with a bad group here. Verse 34, he says, your hands were not bound, nor your feet put in fetters. So he's saying Abner didn't die as a criminal, even though it looked as though we were running with wicked men, you know, and getting in trouble with them. He, he looked like he died as a criminal, but in actuality, he wasn't at this point. And then he says, as a man falls before wicked men, 
so you fell. So he's, you know, it's kind of saying that you were running with really bad guys, and that's what it looks like, but, you know, he hadn't had any of those things on him. So he's basically saying, you were innocent in this. You were murdered, you know. So this should have brought conviction on Joab and his brother Abishai standing there because they had no right legally to do this. Uh, by rights, David should have had the death penalty against him for doing that because this is premeditated murder. All right, verse 35 goes on. When all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath. He said, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. So David is taking this oath in the name of the Lord, but David's walking with the Lord, so this doesn't come across as hypocritical. He's trying to be very careful and do the right thing. So he said, I'm not going to eat anything today. Verse 36, now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all the people. So God's favor was on him. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. So David's actions here showed that he didn't take any pleasure in the death of Abner. You know, had David said, yeah, let's go grab some chow after the funeral, you know, it may have shown an insensitivity and the people might have said, you know, he doesn't really mean what he was saying about that morning over Abner. But because he said, I will fast the rest of this day, you know, his actions proved to the people they had nothing to do with Abner's death. There wasn't a, a drop of joy in anything that that he thought of when he thought about him dying. So verse 38, it says, Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? So David had great respect for Abner by calling him a prince. He wasn't a king, but he knew he's the guy in charge, you know, in that, that place before, uh, before he fell here. And as somebody has said, David had this ability to look past all the bad things that a person had done against him and still show respect to that person at the end of that person's life. And that is amazing when you think about David. He's been having Abner fight him for 10 years, you know, at least here. Sounds like from, the, from what we've seen as he was even working with King Saul before then. So all of this time, Abner's been his enemy. And now when Abner comes around and wants to, to make things right in the eyes of the Lord the way it's supposed to be, David just looks past all that. He said, this guy who died, he didn't say he was a criminal, he was my enemy, he didn't say anything bad about him at all. He said he was a great man, he was a prince. Wow, isn't an amazing uh, testimony with David. So verse 39 goes on. Here's what David said as he continued. And I am weak today, though anointed king. So he's saying that I'm emotionally drained from this loss. I, I don't even have any strength today. It's taking him down that low, you know? And he said, these men, the sons of Zeruiah, which are Joab and his brother there who did the murder, he says, they are too harsh for me. So he declares that Job and his brother Abishai do things in a very harsh way. They aren't thinking about the stuff they do and they aren't showing any compassion. And then it says, uh, the Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So he's saying that I'm going to let this judgment fall in the hands of the Lord. Uh, and, and the thing is, the Lord doesn't do that. Down the road, David is the one who ends up taking Joab's life at a much later time in his life. 
So it's kind of like this. The Lord has already set in place in his law how this guy should have been dealt with. And David did not want to confront him that way. He Instead, he said, you know, I'll call all these curses down on his family, and I'm going to let the Lord take care of this. The Lord kind of already did. He put it in the law. This is what's supposed to happen. And uh, David had a, a real a soft spot there where he didn't like that kind of confrontation, and it was a mistake he made on that too. I don't understand why we're not given any details, but for whatever reason, uh, he didn't follow through with what he should have done according to the law. So it's kind of like this is a criminal, and David's kind of turning his head the other way and saying, well, we'll just let him go on, even though he deserved a death penalty. So interesting here, this, this story ends up, you know, we end up seeing another sad story about people doing things their own way rather than the Lord's way and how much sorrow that brings to people. You know, we saw that last time and this time as well. And it's just like the Lord wants us to feel these emotions of sadness to know this all could have been avoided by simply doing things God's way. But when people get very selfish and self-centered and say, I'm going to do it my way, look what happens down the road. Pain. People get hurt. Hearts are broken, you know, and the Lord wants us to sense that. He wants us to actually feel that in our emotions. So that's why we go through these stories and they're not jump up and down and go, yes, so much great victory here. It's sorrow and God wants us to get that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and again, we thank you for these hard lessons. Lord, let them sink deep in our soul that we know if we choose to live a selfish life, it's going to be painful. We're going to hurt other people. And we're definitely not pleasing you, Lord. So help us today to surrender afresh to you, Lord. To say, Lord, help me not to go my own way. Help me to follow your way. Your way is the way of blessing and peace and goodness and joy. And how we can minister to other people, Lord, and bless them and not hurt them. So, Father, I pray for everybody here with us today and those who are watching as well. Lord, I just ask you to give us a heart for you. Let us be willing to follow you. And let us have a heart like David, you know, that we're not so condemning of people, but we're encouraging and we try to look past their, their sinful side just to say there is something about them, you know, that you've put in that person that, uh, that is a good thing. So, Lord, we just trust you in that. We want to give you all the praise for this, and we do thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.